And we're trying to build experiences that, again, are telling these narratives and they're telling these stories. So it's a little bit different. You know, everybody's life story is slightly different. So you can't really look at it as a group. You have to look at it as an individual. Once you start to understand and empathize with the individual customers for a brand, you can start to decide which experiences are going to resonate with the most of them. The consumer mindset has changed, yet we intuitively know that consumers have a desire to get back to something that feels normal. That's why in this series of episodes, we're looking at the future buying journey. What does normal look like to the post-pandemic consumer? In this context, what needs to change so we're prepared for our new customer journey? And what must we do to be ready for the next growth cycle? I'm Tizzy Philp, and I'll be speaking to a whole host of guests from the Valtec Future Studio team to talk through their insights, impressions, and reactions to this new era of customer experiences. We'll be talking connected experiences, the concept of the dynamic store, whether there's actually some pleasure in the friction we're all trying so hard to remove, and the need to mimic physical interactions in a believable way, as well as so much more. So let's get started. So I have got Jeremy with me today. Jeremy, maybe you want to introduce yourself. Absolutely. Thank you, Tizzy. Excited to be here doing this today. My name is Jeremy Dimstra. I am the Managing Director of Valtech San Diego office. I am also the Senior Vice President of Connected Experiences and the Co-Director of Valtech's Future Studio. And basically what all of that means, my work generally tends to be around emerging technologies, as well as this kind of magical place where digital touches physical spaces and theme parks and retail and hospitality and other places like that. So thanks again for having me. It's always a pleasure, Jeremy. This conversation is uh, all about the future of the customer journey. And to talk about the future of the customer journey, I first of all wanted to dive down a little bit further into what we mean by customer journey and what the customer journey really is. Not what, you know, we all say in B2B or B2C companies, but what it like really is to the consumer. And I want to get to grips with where, particularly in retail, the actual pleasure lies in retail. You know, what's the purpose of retail? beyond that transaction, beyond the purchase. Why do we shop? I know for me, myself, it's not always just to go and buy something. You know, that whole browsing experience, going into town, going to the shopping center, even if it's to go and wander around a supermarket and stare at different people, you know, there's so much more to shopping and retail than just the transaction. So where do you think the pleasure lies in retail? Yeah, it's a great question. I think I see this a little bit differently, I guess. I kind of think of it as your life is your story. It's this narrative that you're creating both for yourself and, frankly, for the perception of others uh, that are around you. So every part of your life tells part of that story, and the things you consume is a huge part of that. So a lot of the pleasure that you get from a retail experience you know, I'm saying something about my life narrative if I shop at REI in Patagonia. You know, I'm saying I'm an outdoor person. I'm into adventures. I'm a risk taker. That's both how I perceive myself and it's how I might want others to perceive. So 
when I go into that retail store or go into REI or Patagonia, I'm purchasing things that are going to further that story. Um, and this, you know, there's a lot of examples of this. I'm saying something about my narrative. If I shop at Chanel and Rolex, Rolex and Louis Vuitton, you know, I'm saying I enjoy the finest things in life. I care deeply about fashion, style, quality. I want to look my best uh, as I write this life story. Maybe those aren't everyday shopping experiences, but this even happens for the staples in your life. So shopping at Target is telling people that I like to have a house fun, uh, full of fun little surprise items um, that make my friends and family smile when they come over or when they're enjoying the house. Shopping for organic food at the grocery store is telling the story that I care deeply about my family's health. So all of these stories and narratives are happening. Um, I think those stories give people the pleasure. There's definitely socialization that happens when you walk into a store and all of those things. But it's our job as people who design digital experiences in these places to enable these stories. We need to figure out what these narratives are and enhance them with the experiences that we create. And if we do that properly, that's going to make these places that people go and have these experiences rather magical and fun and something they want to do over and over again. That's our job. You often talk about removing the friction when you talk about the work that you and your team does or the, the work that we do for clients. And I'm wondering whether actually, without wanting to sound wildly inappropriate, there's actually pleasure in that friction sometimes. Do we really want to remove all the friction from an experience? Do we want to make it so easy that you, you turn it into an easy experience, you turn it into a frictionless, seamless experience, but by its very nature, you're then removing some of the elements of an actual experience from that transaction. I don't think it's wildly inappropriate to say there's good friction in the world all over. <laughs> um, but, you know, definitely good friction and there's bad friction, right? So we never want a transaction to be difficult, right? We never want customer service to be frustrating. You never want somebody to go through that terrible situation where they're on the phone you know, hitting zero 50 times to try to get to a customer service rep. But yes, we do want people to linger a bit and let serendipity happen, uh, especially when they're, you know, in, in a physical retail environment. But again, if you look at this at a higher level, and we say that each person is writing their unique life story um, with all of these choices that they're making, we can definitely create experiences that once you've walked into maybe a physical retail store, uh, the digital experiences allow you to identify yourself and we help you write that narrative in a wonderful way. And, you know, you can add points of friction to these experiences so that you do allow those serendipitous things to happen. So, you know, we notice you are enjoying this product. What do you think of this one over here? Or, wow, you're looking at the sizes of this particular garment. Maybe a sales associate knows that uh, via some clienteling technology and, and brings you different sizes or different colors or, or things like that. So there's this definite push and, and pull with adding friction in in the places you want it and removing it in places where it definitely should. Do you think you've got more control over the full, full customer journey from their browsing behavior through to transaction and then post-purchase relationship? through online means, do you think that actually that is something that is much better supported through digital means than in the tr traditional old physical store experience? Yeah. 
The answer to that is we can have as much control over it as we want and as much as any particular brand is willing to do or frankly should do. And this comes into play with a lot of different levers and parameters that we can we can move. The technology is there to literally track every touch that a customer has with any particular brand. So everything you do on the website, everything you do on the mobile app. When you walk into a physical store, we can identify that person by means that I would never do, where it's automated, by means that we are interesting, where the customer identifies themselves to us. And then after the store, we have loyalty programs and drip marketing campaigns and reciprocal sales that happen and so many different touch points. And we truly do have the power to pull all of those in and to make a completely customized, personalized experience for any customer on a one-to-one unique basis. And there are parts of that that are really, really cool. But then you start to get into the parts of privacy yeah, and all of the issues there and creepiness, frankly. Like, do mm-hmm. people want to be tracked like that? Do they? So that's an interesting question. It is a generational question and a demographic question. So all the research that we currently have, Gen Z and, and under, they are much more comfortable with being tracked and giving up some of their privacy if you are giving them offers and putting things in front of them that they are very interested in and that seem personalized to them. You know, that said, people in the retail work that we're doing in China and Shanghai in particular, very comfortable identifying themselves, giving up some privacy to get offers that are are tailored to them. People in the United States, kind of middle of the road as far as that goes. People in Europe, very much more interested in their privacy than than getting those tailored offerings. Where do you think that comes from, Jeremy? Why do you think there are such differences and disparities? Particularly with the Chinese market, I find that really fascinating that that it would be that way around in China. Ah, it's socio-political to me. So the communist government in China, not a lot of privacy happening, right? Mm-hmm. Like your life is an open book. So you're you're inherently comfortable with that situation. You you've grown up with people looking at every aspect of life. In the United States, we didn't have, this is going back in history, we didn't have World War II on our shore, right? And and we didn't have Germany and fascism and, and everything else like seriously protruding on our privacy. So we're slightly more comfortable with it than folks in Europe are. And frankly, I'm looking at it, the folks in Europe probably have this right. Right. So, you know, we don't want corporations staring into the inner workings of our lives and knowing everything about us in this kind of mad dash to personalize things and uh, sell everything humanly possible to every individual. That's that's not what we're doing at Valtex from the retail Mm -hmm. standpoint. Um, We're trying to make experiences that people truly enjoy. We're trying to be empathetic to people's lives and making it better. So going back to that organic grocery shopping experience. You know, we want information from a customer to know that they're into that kind of thing so that we can bubble up really healthy products for them in a very helpful way. It's not about knowing all of their purchases and trying to make them buy more stuff. It's trying to make their decisions easier and and enjoy it. 
so it's such a fine balance though isn't it it's such a fine balance between the privacy and the, the benefits that you're getting versus that intrusion element and I think you, know, you and your team you know how to get that right how do brands get that right what are the things you look at to to nail that balance because for some brands for companies thinking about you know if, if this is the future of the customer experience if this is the f- future that we need to get on board with how are we going to make sure that we do it right and don't frighten away our customers how do we make sure that our consumers don't go to a different a different competitor yeah what are the ways that they can actually get it right so 10 years ago 5 years ago even i would have answered this in a very user experience way. I would have said, we want to have customer personas. We want to have a bunch of research on those customer personas. And and that's the direction we're going to take. And once we figure those personas out, we can kind of mold these experiences to those personas. I think that technologies actually allowed us now to go beyond those kind of faceless groupings of personas. And we can start looking at individuals and be much more empathetic, truly on a one-to-one relationship with customers. So from a UX standpoint, customer testing is still incredibly important. We use design thinking in everything we do, and we look at it through multiple lenses. So, you know, is it a viable business? Is there going to be a return on investment on this thing? Is it sustainable? Is this good for the planet? Is it even possible? Is it, is it technically feasible to, to build this thing? Uh, from a digital standpoint. But the most important lens we're looking at it is person lens, the people, customer lens. And the question there is, is this going to resonate? Uh, Do people even like the thing that we're trying to build? So what we're doing now to find all of that out is beyond persona and the grouping of persona and going out to as many customers as possible and getting statistically valid answers from customers on a one-to-one individual level. So And we're trying to build experiences that, again, are telling these narratives and they're telling these stories. So it's a little bit different. You know, everybody's life story is slightly different. So you can't really look at it as a group. You have to look at it as an individual. And going back to the original question here, once you start to understand and empathize with the individual customers or brand, you can start to decide which experiences are going to resonate with the most of them. So that goes back to the grouping idea, but you're thinking of it as a much more I am the brand and I'm talking to this individual, less than a large group. And how do you actually do that though, Jeremy? Like what are the what are the things that brands can introduce to their stores? You know, is it a case of starting small? Is it a case with testing out uh, a piece of functionality or a piece of technology or you know, something that they can interact with on their phone and seeing if it resonates? And then if if they get the bite from their consumers, then they take the next step, or is it about going all in? getting that research and then going all in and then keeping your fingers crossed? So this is a crucial question for anybody listening to the podcast. Budgets are limited, right? And you have to spend your money in a really wise way. And the only way to do that is, again, to look at the individuals that you're, you're trying to get in front of, but really rapidly prototype things. So and when I'm talking rapid, we typically, you know, we'll do an ideation session with a, with a client and we'll figure out maybe 20 different digital experiences that you do, say, in a retail setting. The first thing we do is we use those lenses I was talking about, and let's say that weeds it down to about 10 items. From there, we kind of prioritize them, and we have a rough idea of what costs might be and things like that, or just level of effort. 
but we'll take three or four, maybe five of those ideas and do a prototype that takes three days, four days, maybe a week to actually create testable technology or at least a user interface and people can tap on things and touch things and interact with it. And then we customer test. And um, you know, when I mentioned statistically valid, you want to make sure that you have enough people in a testing environment that it, that will extrapolate to your entire customer base uh, statistically. But doing that with those rapid prototypes, you're, you're saving hundreds of thousands of dollars on making sure that you're not going down the wrong path. And to take this back a little bit, again, six, seven years ago, we were in a position where a client would come to us with a question on whether or not to use a particular emerging technology. And really, it wasn't even a question. They were saying, hey, our competitors are doing augmented reality. We want to do augmented reality. And you know, we didn't look at it through the design thinking lens at that point. But, okay, great. That sounds like fun. Let's build this thing for you. And man, it was a, a large percentage of the time that those products would fail because we were kind of grabbing this latest shiny technology and, and assuming that that's what these customers want. And a lot of times they didn't. So now that we're running them through these lenses, we're quickly prototyping things, we're quickly testing them with customers, we're getting the answers we need. Say, all right, we just tested five concepts. Three of them were complete failures. One of them was okay, but we think we can pivot and make it great. One of them was a home run, knock it out of the park kind of situation. It was definitely that. Mm-hmm. And now, I would say almost 100% of the products and digital experiences we're shipping um, and scaling and really putting out there in the world are resonating. And they're making true business differences, like they're increasing revenue, hitting KPIs that are put in front of us. And that's transformational when you, when you start to do it that way. It's been a fun ride figuring all of that out. It's a really good one, Jeremy, because there will be lots of brands who probably kind of hang back a bit and wait for someone else to do it and see if it works with these new things that, you know, new adoption of technologies, hang back, see if it works for them. If it doesn't work, they, then great. They haven't, they haven't risked anything. If it does work, interesting. Let's see how we can do it ourselves. And actually what you're saying is what works for one doesn't work for everyone else. You've got to create something that works for your consumers, your individual consumers, whether or not it's working for your competitors or not. It has to be all about you and your individual situation. A hundred percent yes on what I would call digital experiences. So there, there is a whole world of emerging technologies that I would grab as one of the first to market people. So things like when you are looking at brand new tech for logistics or operations or inventory or purchasing POS or e-commerce kind of technologies, those can make a business exponentially more efficient. And my advice typically to our clients is to test those new technologies and buy it if it works for you like right away, even if it's the newest of the new tech, because I've seen those kind of technologies revolutionize organization. Um, and if they're kind of the first to tap into that, they're going to get a, an edge on the market and potentially beat out competition by using that latest technology. Good tip. Right, let's switch this up a level because uh, you have been very involved in uh, the Valtech dynamic store concept right from the beginning. And I remember us talking about this 
a long time ago uh, and you explained it to the rest of Valtech and everyone thought this was really incredible. And now we're getting closer to be able to show this to the external world. And I wonder if you can explain what we mean by the dynamic store and then just dive into all the exciting stuff that you're working on in that context. So the dynamic store kind of came into play for us a couple of years ago. Um, and we were doing a lot of consulting work for Levi's, for Under Armour, for Disney and, and others. And part of this goes back to earlier in our conversation where there is so much data available and what can we do with it? That could be really cool, really interesting, really transform the business. And the core concept here is you can imagine a physical retail store that literally evolves and morphs and changes itself on a daily basis based on the data around. So things like you might have a couple years worth of e-commerce data feeding into this uh, algorithm. You might have all of your couple years of POS data. You're going to have regional differences on what product's hot in one region and what's not hot in another. You might have a weather data feed so that you know if it's raining, you would put fall weather gear in, in the front of the store that next day. You might have, and we do have, uh, data feeds on social trend information. So the example for Levi's was Justin Timberlake wore a white trucker jacket let's make the store evolve the next day so that those white tracker jackets are in the most heavily trafficked area of the store. So basically what this thing does is working with architecture firms and store design firms, you build the fixtures in the store to either literally be on casters, little wheels that, so that you can wheel them around. And we're even looking at robotic fixtures that move themselves around and a store manager signs into a user interface um, called the digital experience manager or, or the store experience manager. And the algorithm takes all of these data feeds and says, all right, our recommendation for the store layout tomorrow is this. And then the, the manager puts their human touch on this and says, that's not a good idea. This seems like a great idea. Either the sales associates in the morning move the fixtures around the store or the robots do it themselves. And you basically get the analytics and you say, all right, we made these changes. What worked, what didn't? Um, the things that worked with one button, you know, send that information to all of the stores. Maybe you have 3,000 stores throughout the world. Um, something you did was just brilliant. Uh, and all of the stores can benefit from that and move their fixtures around and move the product around where it needs to be. The bad ideas kind of die. And you can kind of imagine how over time you're basically making the system smarter and smarter and smarter so that as a customer walks in, they truly feel like this store is meant for them. I, again, on that one-to-one -one basis is what we're shooting for. And they have a delightful experience. So, Question, Jeremy. The dynamic store concept is incredible. And I've seen the visualizations that are coming out of it. And they are absolutely mind-blowing. How much of this do you think is us developing these scenarios, these physical stores for the future generations versus the generations that are still out shopping. They're still, you know, maybe not digitally native, but they're still out shopping. They're still out using these stores. You know, they want to rely on being able to find the product in the same place every time they go back into that store. How's that going to work for them? It's a great question. <laughs> I would never say that this concept is applicable to every brand in every situation. 
if I walk into the grocery store, I darn well better know where I'm going to get the milk. <laughs> <laughs> and you want consistency in those situations. If I walk into a retailer like Levi's and I'm only there two, three times a year, and I happen to be going in this time because I saw Beyonce wearing some cutoff 501s at Coachella. <laughs> and those cutoff 501s are right there in the front window because we knew that. That's a magical experience. And that's the kind of thing you need to look at it. Every, every situation is different. Every brand is different. Every customer is different. And the concepts that I'm talking about are basically the buzzword, I guess, is creating these moments of light, right? And that's really what it's all about. It's, mm -hmm. it's removal of friction. It's delighting somebody. It's making this kind of incredible experience happen when they walk into a store. You know, I just saw Beyonce at Coachella and I walked into the Levi store and her shorts were there. That's, that's crazy. Like, oh, <laughs> I bought two pairs. <laughs> well, wondering about your wardrobe choices, but yeah. no judgment. Um, <laughs> do you think that people are shopping less? Now, do you think it's going to kind of bigger one-off purchases rather than that old fast fashion that we were becoming more accustomed to? So, I mean, there's far less shopping going on in physical stores right now due to the pandemic and everything else. Some data is coming back on that, very, very early data that is suggesting that when everything does open up here in a few months, it is going to be gangbusters crazy town in physical stores because people have so much pent up demand. Mm. So I think that's going to go through the roof. That said, there is more long-term data, particularly on Gen Z, Z and under that definitely does back up this idea that people are buying less things and more experiences. So again, this goes right back to the beginning of this podcast where they are putting more emphasis on the things they consume, helping them tell their life story. And that may indeed be less physical things, more quality physical things, things that are going to last, um, mm. things say something about you in a way that you want it to say it. And again, those, those experiences, going on a trip versus buying that new stereo. I don't know why that came to mind. But <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the idea, right? Do you think there's just the same value in creating these experiences for budget products as there is for higher priced items? In some situations, yes. But this is absolutely one of the things that I would run through some very vigorous testing with those design thinking lenses I was talking about and customer testing. Because you definitely can get into a situation where that commodity is going to sell whether or not you put a digital experience on top of it at all. Mm -hmm. The flip side of that is you might well find some commodities that just fly off the shelf and you've decommoditized them by putting a digital experience with them. Mm. So both sides of that coin can get played, but it is incredibly crucial to test that with customers before um, going to the expense of building that at scale. So, we are almost coming to our time and we've talked a lot about customers, customer experience, all the different things. Let's now talk about tangible takeaways for the people listening to this podcast. 
obviously you're involved in the Veltip Future Studio. Maybe it would be a good idea for you to give the listeners a little bit more information about what that is and what that means for companies or how we can help companies through that vehicle. That's a great question. If I were a client of ours or a potential client, you know, looking at Valtech as a potential partner, some of the really neat things we're doing, everything I'm talking about as far as creating a narrative and telling a story and design thinking and ideation and coming up with these ideas and testing these ideas to see if they're effective or not. We do all this with what we call the applied innovation programs inside Valtech Future Studio. There's multiple levels of these things. So, you know, there's the, uh, what we call the Future Spark, which is basically a three-day kind of engagement where somebody comes in and uh, we're doing some upfront research and competitive analysis and looking at the marketplace. And we're basically answering one question for how the future is going to play out for a particular client. And then we're doing a workshop with them. And then there's some time on the back end where we're creating a bunch of deliverables and giving them a really cool report. And then, you know, the next level up from that is the future gateway where it's more time. It's a couple of weeks and we're going much more in depth with our research, our competitive analysis, looking at all the different digital experiences and products that might be out there. And it's a longer workshop with more people involved, both the client side and uh, from the Valtech Future Studio side. And we're also creating prototypes out of that. So testable prototypes that you can put out into the market, test with customers and do things of that nature. And then it scales up from there. So, you know, there's your more traditional discovery, which we call the future horizon. These things are typically six to eight weeks long. There's a large team on that. And that would be when we've identified, you know, here's 10 great ideas. Let's weed that down to the ones that are going to work best, test them with customers, create multiple prototypes. We choose the prototypes that we're going to build. We actually start building these things in that six to eight weeks, continuously testing those with customers uh, to make sure that what we're doing is going to resonate. So that's kind of how that all works. But they're super fun. If I were to suggest anything as a takeaway from this particular talk, have a great story that you're going to tell. Test like crazy with customers um, and make sure it resonates uh, through those design thinking lenses. And do a fun workshop with Future Studio. Because <laughs> literally hundreds of ideas come out of those things and they're incredibly valuable. So. I was going to get that in the end there, Jeremy. Those yeah. three takeaways and then get in touch with the uh, Jeremy and the Valtech Future Studio as well if you want to hear any more. Jeremy, thank you so much as ever for joining me on this podcast. Absolutely. It's a pleasure as always. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the latest episode from Valtech Cafe. You can find out more about the Valtech Future Studio and the amazing work they're doing to bring together pioneering research and insights, strategic planning, human-centered design and emerging technology in an innovative way that transforms businesses at futurestudio.valtech.com. We've got a great lineup of Valtech Cafe content set to come your way this year, So make sure you subscribe to get the latest digital insights straight to your favorite channel. Until next time, thanks for listening.